Good morning, church. My name is Mitchell Slater. I'm one of the elders here, and I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 today, going through verses 1 through 5. So Ephesians 5, 1 through 5, hear what the Spirit says to the church. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But... Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You have given us this book of books. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to obey. pray that you would lift up the Lord Jesus Christ and that you would draw all men to him. We pray that you would do this for the good of your people and for the glory of your great name. Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. Amen. This passage, these first five verses of of chapter 5, I believe we can summarize them in this way. In Christ, we are beloved children and holy saints, so we are called to imitate His love and holiness. In Christ, we are beloved children and we are holy saints, so we are called to imitate His love and holiness. So we're going to look at at the call to imitation in verse 1, and then we're going to look at what that looks like to imitate Him in His love and in His holiness. So first, the the call to imitation. Let's read verse 1 again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Children love to copy their parents. They they mimic the, the words and the mannerisms of their parents, even little things. Like, like body language, how they walk. Sometimes it's a wonderful thing. Sometimes it's cute. Sometimes it's terrifying. If you're a parent, you know what I mean. They copy everything. We can even look at ourselves, and very oftentimes we can, we can see our parents. So it's, it's starting to become a more frequent occurrence where I'll say something, and I'll think, oh, that, sound, that sounds just like my dad. And my dad's here, so sorry, Dad. <laughs> but for some of us, that may be a point of pride. 
We're like our parents. And for some of us, it may be a place of, of pain. But thankfully, God has no flaws. He is the perfect father. He is the perfect example. He is the only person who is worthy of our imitation to live like him, to copy him. And this is really just a brief summary of the Christian life. A Christian, a child of God, imitates God their father. God's children imitate God their father. Now, the question that, that always arises when it comes to, um, you know, why are we like our parents? Why are our kids like us? Is it, is it nature or is it nurture? That's the, that's the classic question, nature versus nurture. So are we like our parents because we share their same DNA? Or are we like our parents because we just shared their same house? We were raised by them. I think very often the answer is both. And it's the same for us as Christians. So, in a sense, we are God's children by nature. Not by our first birth, but by our second birth. Not by our physical birth, but by our spiritual birth. That's what it means to be born again. When our hearts are changed by the Spirit of God, our desires are changed. And we want to be like God. Even if it's in baby steps, even if it seems small and weak and frail, God's children want to be like Him. Which is why you must be born again. If God has not given you a new heart, then nothing else that Paul says here is going to be applicable to you. You will not be able to do it. You cannot live like a child of God, if you're not truly in His family. So if you don't know Him, if you're not a Christian, come to Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be welcomed by the most loving Father imaginable. A Father who will give you a heart. Who will give you the, the passion and the desire to follow Him. But our imitation of God also comes from nurture. I mean, Paul has to say it here. He says, be imitators of God. That means it's not automatic. And we know it's not always a natural thing. So if we are to imitate God, to copy God, to pattern our life based off of His, then we need to do what a child does with their father. We need to spend time with him. We need to spend time in His Word to know who He is and what He's done. We need to spend time with Him in prayer, having communion with Him and fellowship with Him, walking with Him. And we must spend time with His people, which is an area that I think we neglect very often. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So if you spend any amount of time at River Oaks, you know that we take discipleship very seriously. We talk about it a lot, but what is it? What is discipleship? 
Well, it's not merely evangelism. That's part of it. It's not just transferring information from one person to another person. It's imitation. It's imitation. It's telling someone, come walk with me as I walk with Jesus. It's looking around and finding a more mature believer and saying, I want to see how you live and spend time with you and imitate you as you imitate Jesus. Paul said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. He said, you, however, have followed my teaching. So we're with him there. We get that discipleship has to do with teaching. But he goes on. He says, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings. So yeah, teaching is a part of it, but there's even more. He's saying, Timothy, you've been my disciple, and you have followed even my aim in life, even my sufferings. Discipleship is imitation. And often the way that we imitate our father is by imitating our older brothers and sisters in the faith. So we're called to imitate God, to live like him, to walk like he walks. And Paul lets us know specifically what he has in mind. He says we are to follow him, to imitate him in his love and in his holiness. So in verse 2, we see that as beloved children, we're called to imitate God's love. Let's read that verse again. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he calls us to walk in love. But we have to ask, what, what does that even mean? I mean, we, we throw the word love around and it seems like it's one of those situations where you, you keep using that word and I don't think you know what it means. But the Bible is very clear. I think it, it breaks it down well for us that, that we can think of love in this way. Love is an affection. Love is an attitude. And love is an action. Love is an affection, love is an action, or an attitude, and love is an action. <laughs> so thinking of love as an affection, that makes sense to most of us. That's, that, that's probably the most common way that at least our society talks about love, that it's an emotion and a feeling, and that's correct. The Scriptures certainly speak of love in that way. <laughs> You see over and over again that Jesus was moved with compassion. He was moved with love. But it's correct, but it's incomplete. There's more to love than just an affection, just an emotion. Love is also an attitude. It should be the natural way that we respond to other people. Love should be our settled disposition, our general manner of life. And it's an attitude of selflessness. It is an attitude that gives oneself away, that puts other people first, that is self-forgetful and others-focused. It is our attitude as a Christian. 
But those affections and that attitude should always lead us to action. Our love is to be a reflection of God's love. And the specific example in verse 2 is the cross of Calvary. To walk in love is to walk the path of the cross. In other words, John 3.16 should lead to 1 John 3.16. So we all know John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. But 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Christ's sacrificial love should fuel our sacrificial love. Just as we learned last week that Christ's forgiveness should motivate our forgiveness, so also Christ's love should motivate our love. Love is not simply something you feel. It's something you do. So I would like to ask, do you consider yourself a loving person? And I know many of us would say, yes, yes, of course I'm a loving person. I'm a nice guy, a nice gal. But use Paul's standard here. Hold verse 2 up as a mirror and take an honest look. How have you practically demonstrated love to others? Not just in word and emotions, but in deed and action. Are you quick to serve others or to serve yourself? Do you say that you love your fellow believers, but when push comes to shove, you don't make the necessary sacrifices to demonstrate that love? If that's you, and I'm sure all of us feel this in some way, if it's you, don't despair. Verse 2 is meant to be a motivator, not a guilt trip. Paul is trying to lift our eyes so that we can see the cross, so that we can see the bleeding love of our Savior and have the coldness of our heart melted away. The only way to grow in love for one another is to grow in our understanding of the Redeemer's love for us. So we are called to imitate God's God's love. But then he goes on to call us to imitate God's holiness. This is in verse 3 to 5. Let's read it one more time. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, we often view the biblical world, the world of the first century, as being vastly different than our own. And in some ways, that's correct. Electricity is kind of important. But in many ways, it isn't. The world of the first Christians in the first century was far more similar to ours 
than we tend to think. Now, in these verses here, Paul is addressing the topic of sexuality. And it sounds like it could have been written today. The Roman Empire had almost no boundaries in this regard. The Ephesian metropolis was filled with every kind of perversion, not hidden in the shadows, but but flaunted down the streets. Prostitution was rampant. Fidelity to one's spouse was unheard of. Debauchery was the rule, not the exception. And the center of their religious and economic life was the temple of Artemis, a goddess of fertility. And I'll omit the particulars of how such a deity is worshipped. Into this dark culture, Paul came preaching the light of the gospel of Christ. Now we often call what happened in the 1960s the the sexual revolution. But, But the real revolution happened in the 30s. Not the 1930s, just the 30s. Jesus and his apostles preached a sexual ethic that was higher than anyone had heard before. It had been unpracticed and unheard of by both Jews and pagans alike. This is the message that Paul was bringing to Ephesus. It's the message that we have to bring today as the gospel advances into dark and hostile cultures. Cultures that hypothetically speaking, would offer free pornography subscriptions during a pandemic. Cultures like our own. The first century world was not that much different. So Paul, in verses 3 and verse 5, he gives us three categories for this type of sin that will help us out as as we dig deeper into the text. He tells us that we need to put away Immorality, impurity, and idolatry. We're to put away immorality, impurity, and idolatry. So first, with immorality. The word that Paul uses here is the Greek word porneia, from which we get our word pornography. It is an extremely comprehensive word that encompasses a number of of sinful activities. I would refer you to Leviticus 18, often called the Pornea Code, if you want the particulars. But to make it simple, immorality, with this particular word, is any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. It is anything outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. It is extremely comprehensive. And a complaint often gets, gets thrown against Christianity, that we're anti-sex, that we think it's somehow a dirty or sinful thing, but that couldn't be further from the truth. In verse 4, Paul says that there should be thanksgiving among us. And in the context, it's about this particular gift. Sexuality is a gift that is meant to be prized and treasured and valued, which is exactly why we don't want to treat it flippantly. We don't stay chaste until marriage or stay faithful to our spouse because that's a dirty thing, but because it's such a beautiful gift of God. Another reason we care about this issue is because we've just been called to walk 
in love. And if love is defined as us selflessly serving one another, then this kind of immoral behavior is using that person to serve myself. If love is selflessness, lust is self-serving. If love is self-forgetful, then lust is self-focused. If I truly love someone, I will honor their dignity and live with them in a manner worthy of God. Immorality is the very opposite of love, which is why I think Paul pairs them against each other. But Paul then goes on to speak of this word impurity, a word that could be translated unholiness or defilement. So we're called to avoid these types of sins because we have been called to holiness. We've been called to be saints. So look at verse 3 again. He says, These things shouldn't be named among you as is proper among saints. So what's a saint? The picture in her head is probably something like Mother Teresa, you know, some, some super elite class of Christians, maybe someone that moves out into the desert to live at a monastery. But that is not the biblical view of the word saint. A saint is another word for a Christian. It's a word that literally means holy. We could translate it as the holy ones. And in Jesus, that's who we are. We are God's holy people. But notice, Paul, he is not telling us to become saints. He's not telling us what we can do to make ourselves holy. Now he's saying, that's who you already are. He started off this letter saying, to the saints who are in Ephesus. In Romans 1.7, Paul says that we are loved by God and called to be saints. We are holy because that's what God says about us. We're holy because that's who God says we are. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says that through Christ's death, He presents us holy and blameless and above reproach before God. We have been covered in the holy, holy, holy robes of the Lord Jesus himself. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be a saint. And we desperately need to know these gospel truths. This is the, the classic indicative imperative balance that we've been hearing so much about over the last few weeks and months that we need to know what is true about us in the gospel so then we can live out of that truth in our actual lives. He has made us holy, so we are to live out of that truth. We are to become, in reality, who we already are in Christ. So we need to know this. We need to know these, these indicatives, these truths, because Paul is setting an incredibly high standard. He says, all impurity must not even be named among you. He says it shouldn't even be named. There shouldn't be a trace, not even a hint of this type of sin in our midst. 
That's because this sin is deadly. He says it's impure, it's unholy, it separates us from a holy God. It provokes the wrath of a holy God. Look at what he says in verse 5. We have to take this seriously. Paul says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I want to know the flip side of what that means. Just one more verse in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is a serious issue. And this is the standard for the individual Christian. It's also the standard for the church as a whole. He says it must not be named among you, plural. We might say it must not be named among y'all. Christ has called us out of the world to be a community of light and holiness and purity. But do you realize that your purity and your marital faithfulness, your faithfulness as a single, it isn't just about you. It affects other people. And we know this when it comes to our family. But do you realize that it also affects your church? It affects this body of believers. You may think that, that, that looking at pornography or reading erotic novels doesn't affect anyone else. But it's not true. And I fear that, that so many people are trapped in this sin. And because of moral failure, and because of moral compromise, we're not active in the body of Christ. We're not actively serving one another because we're weighed down with guilt over this sin. It affects more than just you. And this is also why we should pursue holiness is so we can go to someone who is struggling and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm still a sinner, but Christ has freed me from this. This is what discipleship looks like. It's gritty and it's raw and we need it. So this type of sin, it shouldn't even be named. It shouldn't even come up when talking about Christ's church. And that's why he even goes on to talk about our speech in verse 4. So you might think, I'm off the hook. I don't commit these sins with my body. But Paul says, let's talk about your tongue. Let's read verse 4 again. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So there should be no filthiness, that is, no obscenities, no profanities. There should be no foolish talk, or literally, no moronic words. And there should be no crude or coarse joking. In other words, we're saints and not sailors, and so we should sound like it. But let's talk about joking. Because we have to admit that humor is a great gift of God. We see humor and sarcasm and satire used in godly ways all throughout the Bible. See especially the prophets. 
God himself even laughs. See, Psalm 2. But he never laughs about sin. He never laughs about sin. And Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I believe we could just as equally say, out of the heart, the mouth jokes. So I want you to ask yourself, what do you tend to joke about? Do you have a tendency to make light of the serious things of God? Do you kid around about the truth of Scripture? About things that the Scripture takes with the utmost seriousness just to get a few cheap laughs? You might think, why is it a big deal? Just joking around. Why is it so dangerous? Because it's easy to commit the sins that we joke about. It's easy to commit the sins that we joke about. Our sense of humor can desensitize us to the seriousness of sin. We need to honor the gift of marriage and sexuality even in the way we talk. They shouldn't be the object of our jokes, but of our praise and thanksgiving. So we're called to put away impurity, to put on holiness. But third, Paul comes to the topic of idolatry. He says, put away covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, this is very insightful. If you think back to the Ten Commandments, he's showing us that the First Commandment and the Tenth Commandment are actually the exact same thing. When we covet, when we desire that which God has not given to us, we are setting up another God in place of the one true God. So Paul, he's talked about our bodies, he's talked about our speech, but now he gets to our hearts. And if immorality is the fruit, then idolatry is the root of our problem. And ultimately, this type of sin, and sin in general, is a worship problem. The Ephesians, they may have been tempted to worship Artemis with a temple prostitute. But we are just as tempted to worship the secular gods of pleasure and instant gratification in Exactly the same way. All physical immorality starts off as a desire of the heart. Moses even warned us about this in the 10th commandment. He didn't just say, you shall not covet. He said, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. All physical immorality starts off as a desire of the heart. Now in the painful situations where spouses have been unfaithful. The physical desire is normally just a small part of the story. It's the, it's the emotional desire that led to that result. You start talking to someone who seems to understand you. They seem to provide joy and satisfaction but it ultimately leads to ruin. We've been reading through Proverbs. And in chapters 5 and 7, Solomon gives strong warnings against this. But he says, I believe it's in chapter 5, he says, don't treasure up her looks in your heart. 
He knows it's a heart problem. When we worship the creature rather than the creator, when we try to drink out of broken vessels that can hold no water, when we try to find our joy and our satisfaction and our contentment in another person, in a mere mortal, we will always be left empty and dry. Our hearts were made to worship the triune God. Our hearts were made to find the fullness of joy in Jesus Christ. And so that's where the answer lies. Because you might be thinking, okay, I, I know it's bad. You don't have to keep telling me this sin is bad. I know it's terrible, but I feel enslaved by it. I feel trapped. I feel imprisoned. Well, Paul is going to give you a one-word answer. Thanksgiving. Back to verse 4. He says, let there be thanksgiving. Or in other words, worship. Or if Art were here, he would say, we need mortification. We need to consider ourselves dead to sin, but we also need vivification to consider ourselves alive to God. We have to fight fire with fire, and we have to fight pleasure with pleasure. So in Greek mythology, if you think back to ninth grade English lit class, you'll remember about the sirens. So the sirens were these sea creatures who looked like beautiful women, and they would sing songs that would lead sailors to sail towards their island, but they would ultimately crash on the rocks and perish. Well, there were several men who sailed by that island and survived. One was Odysseus, if you remember him. Odysseus, he knew this was happening. He knew this was going to come, that the sirens were going to sing their song and that no one would be able to resist it. So he had his men plug up their ears so they couldn't hear, and they had him tied down to the boat because he wanted to hear the song. He knew he couldn't trust himself to resist the temptation, but he still wanted to hear it, so he had himself tied up. And Odysseus and his crew sailed past the island safely. There was another man named Jason. And Jason was also sailing past this island, but he had a different method. On the crew of his ship was a man who was fabled to be the most amazing musician of his time. So he had this man come to the middle of the boat and play his harp and play the most beautiful music imaginable. So as they sailed past that island and the sirens were singing their song, those sailors were too busy listening to this sweeter, more beautiful music. And that siren song didn't even tempt them. Now, both of those worked. They both avoided destruction. Which one's better to do? Now, you may be in a situation where you need an accountability partner, where you need to put something like covenant eyes on your phone. You need to get rid of some technology. You may need to do that. But if that's all you do, you're not really dealing with the problem. Because just like Odysseus, you tie yourself down, but you still want to hear it. You still love and treasure that sin. 
So don't settle for the shackles of the law when we can enjoy the sweet melody of grace. In moments of temptation, turn to Christ. Think of His beauty. Think of His love. Think of the unbreakable relationship He's formed with you. Read His words. Commune with Him in prayer. Get others to speak of His grace and His glory to you. Lead your own heart in worship. Talk to yourself and say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. The only way to avoid the siren song of temptation is to sing and listen to the sweeter song of the gospel. Worship is our warfare. Worship is our warfare. So what do we do now? We've heard this high standard that Paul has laid out for us, and that standard would crush us all. Paul, we've already read, he says, you can forfeit your inheritance in the kingdom. So where's the hope? Is there any hope? Yes, that's what verse 2 is all about. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a sacrifice and a fragrant offering to God. So you may think, because of what you've done, because of what you've said, because of the thoughts that have come through your mind, you may think that you are a stench in God's nostrils. But Paul says otherwise. He says that Christ's sacrifice is a pleasing aroma. It's a sweet smell to God. In the Old Testament, that was the picture of God accepting a sacrifice. When a sacrifice would be offered and God would accept that sacrifice, it says that he would smell the aroma and it was pleasing to him. So you may have been immoral. You may be impure. You may be an idolater. But Christ died for you. He gave himself up for you. And he and he alone can make you 100% holy in the eyes of God. He can cover you with the sweet aroma of his grace so that when God breathes in deep over you, He is delighted and you're accepted as his beloved child. So if you're not a Christian, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Put your faith and trust in Christ alone. These magnificent truths can be true for you right now. This very instant. Turn away from your sin and put your trust in this Savior. In the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be cleansed, you can be washed, you can be made new. If you are a Christian, find your rest in Christ alone. You may even be thinking, yeah, I get that about the sins before I was a Christian. But there's things that I did yesterday. There is grace that is greater than all your sin. Where grace abounds, or where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Christ has cleansed you. He has redeemed you. He is sanctifying you. And He and He alone can satisfy your deepest desires. 
and give you the glorious joy of his salvation. So, if you are in Christ, you are God's beloved child. And you are God's holy saint. So in joyful worship, imitate his love and his holiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good word to us. We thank you for hard words to us. We thank you for giving us your abundant grace and your powerful Holy Spirit to help us. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the only mediator between God and man, the one who gave himself up for us in love as a sacrifice. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Set our hearts on him. Set our affections on him. And help us to be loving as you are loving. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Conform us more into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Do this for the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.